You want any tea or anything? No. 45 minutes to cool it down. It's still not cool enough? No. Are you it's sure? Really <laughs> We've literally been talking for 45 minutes. Okay, it's fine. <laughs> it's good. You're a little wimp. <laughs> I don't want to burn my tongue. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. We're discussing chapter four, The River Road, today. And the beginning part of this chapter goes into why, or excuse me, how trading works in the six duchies. Yeah. What the coast does and the outer duchies uh, uses the Buck River for, how fishing is a big thing for the coast. And having the ports there bring in exotic goods from the from Chelsea and the Out Islands and things like that. And some like livestock and things go up. But the river also brings all that the inner duchies have to give, plus furs and things like that from the mountains down to the outer duchies. Yeah. It's a give and take. Just a little more background. Pretty much what we have t- we've talked about before. Right. It's definitely hammering home the importance of the coastal duchies, which is something that Regal seems to overlook. And the importance of all of them working together. Right. In general, because there's a give and take that is described in here. Mm-hmm. And it says that Buck's wealth has two major sources, the rich fishing grounds that the coastal folk have always enjoyed, and the shipping trade created by supplying the inland duchies with all they lack via the Buck River. And that first one we will talk a little bit later on in the chapter about, but it's obviously hampered by the Red Ship Raiders. At the moment, the fishing grounds are, you know, going to be hard to get to. Mm-hmm. And hard to leave your home just in case they raid while you're gone. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of little things that are being broken being broken down by the Red Ship Raiders coming in. Yeah, and the second one is by Regal's doing. He pretty much stripped all of the outer duchies of all, all of its wealth and is taxing all of them. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. Mm-hmm. But their second source of income is supplying the inland duchies with all that the inland duchies lacks and literally the only thing that they lack now is the fish because they took all the rest of it for themselves right fitz wakes up in the morning after you know deciding to become a man again and he is hungover he is nudged awake by night eyes there's an empty bottle of elderberry wine and night eyes is very concerned with him You sleep too soundly. Are you sick? No, just stupid. I never before noticed that it made you sleep soundly. (laughs) Good old Night Eyes. And Night Eyes has woken him up in pre-dawn before the sun has fully topped the the horizon, but it is starting to become light. Mm -hmm. So it's probably like four (laughs) o'clock. Yeah, super early. And it is important to note that it's not just a hangover. It is also... The remnants of pain that Fitz felt from skilling. Yes, yes. Um, so it is 
a little bit more than just a hangover, but essentially it's a really bad hangover. <laughs> Specifically calls out that he wakes up like blearily and uh-huh. not startles awake like usual. Right. At a touch, Night Eyes has been nudging him and saying that he sleeps too soundly. Fitz doesn't want to go hunting, so he sends Night Eyes off and uh, decides to take a little nap again. And then when he wakes up again, it's full light outside. Right. And it's a very sunny day, so Night Eyes is sleeping somewhere with a full belly. And although he agrees with Night Eyes that there's not much good that comes from a sunny day at this exact moment with his horrible <laughs> headache, uh, he also knows that he made a promise to become more man fully so he can't just nap away the day like a animal would. Right, so he he cleans up the cabin, sweeps it up, sets it to right, and starts piling his belongings and what he's going to take along with him on the table and decides that makes a very small pile. Right, but a lot if you think about the fact that all of it has to go on his back. Right, right. Um, He also talks a little bit about how he's realizing that he probably won't ever come back to this cabin. Um, But he's going to clean up anyway, because if some weary traveler comes through looking for a shelter, he wants it to be available for them. Right. Yeah. And so packing and cleaning and everything like that, he decides to get himself cleaned up and he goes down to the stream to wash up, get something to drink and then wash his clothes before, you know, finalizing his package that he's going to carry off. Right. Um, And when he comes back, he notices leggings on the doorstep, which he assumes he dropped. And then as he picks them up, he realizes that he's not alone. And that should have been his first warning. Right. The dropped leggings. But he has been relying too strongly on his wit. And unconsciously, I think he or subconsciously, I think he knows that Mm -hmm. because he's trying to become more manly. But at the same time, he's been doing it all of his life. He just relies pretty much solely on the wit and what's around him, and he's become careless. And there are two forged ones inside rummaging around with his pack. Yes. Fighting over and eating the dried meats and just kind of staring at each other. And when he comes in, they shift attention to Fitz and stare at him. Right. And then we get a little blurb about how, you know, a little summary of the last couple books where the Red Ship Raiders are destroying the country by forging people and he talks about the hardest part is it's hard to tell which is worse the fact that your brother may now think that every type of thing that is illegal is okay as long as it gets them what they need or the fact that you have to turn around and hunt your brother like an animal right that both are bad but you can't really figure out which is worse and he also talks about how he mostly had to deal with the forged ones in winter Mm mm-hmm when they were already starved and weak. But this is the end of summer. These look like two freshly forged uh, young men because they're not matted in dirt. They're just dirty, mm-hmm. as normal people might become dirty. And he is used to um, not having to fight head-on with strong other strong beings. Right. Just poisoning and running away, basically. Yeah, and I think it's also important to talk about how 
before it's kind of easier to create them into this pocket of not quite human where they're matted and dirty and starving to death and just don't look very human anymore because they kind of aren't. But now these are basically two young men and they look like people and that's a lot different and mentally a lot different to try to prepare yourself to kill than some wild beast looking creatures. Yeah. And so with this in front of him, he tries to back away because they already have his food, so they shouldn't chase him. But one of them points at him and says, Dreams too loud, he declared angrily. They both dropped their plunder and sprang after me. Fitz whirls to leave and smashes right into a third one who is wearing Fitz's shirt. Fitz grabs his knife, stabs him a few times, the forged one a few times, and uh, struggles with the other two. They have a scuffle. One of the forged ones gets his hands around Fitz's throat. And Fitz freezes up. Nidaz is really far away. He senses this. Mm-hmm. And he's coming, but he can't get there fast enough. And with him screaming in terror and with his that the forged one on top of him, it awakens every single fear he had and every memory he had of Regal's dungeon. Panic came over me like a sudden poison. I plunged back into nightmare. I was too terrified to move. My heart hammered. I could not take a breath. My hands were numb. I could not tell if I still gripped my knife. His hand touched my throat. Frantically, I flailed at him, thinking only of escape, of evading that touch. His companion saved me with a savage kick that grazed my side as I thrashed and connected solidly with the ribs of the man on top of me. I heard him gasp out his air, and with a wild shove, I had him off me. I rolled clear, came to my feet, and fled. He has an intense recollection of what it was like to be trapped, to be held down, to be beaten, and his PTSD really kicks in here. Yeah. And for the first time, he flees completely scared. Right, because up until this point, even if he was outnumbered, he still fought. He still knew that he could hold them off at least until Night Eyes came to help. And I don't think before we've ever seen hesitancy from Fitz to kill somebody in a life-threatening situation. And I think in reading this, I was wondering if his need to uh, throw himself into anything that could kill him has gone away. And I don't necessarily know if that's the case, but I think that now he knows that some of the things he's throwing himself into that are dangerous hurt a lot more than others. And he just can't be as brazen as before. Right. He needs to get out of the situation. So it's like a really interesting thing to see this person who we've seen up until this point. I don't know if it's bravery or stupidity, but bravely stand before any obstacle. And now he's fleeing. He knows the area around the cabin as from his time as a wolf and loses them and hides in a thicket. And he throws up his mental walls as well because he thinks of the dreams too loud that the forged one had accused him of. 
Well, Jade and Verity had both suspected that Skilling drew the Forged Ones. Perhaps the, perhaps the keenness of feeling it demanded and the outreaching of that feeling and skill touched something in them and reminded them of all they had lost. And made them want to kill whomever could still feel? Maybe. Do you think that they want to kill him because they can't feel? I'm not sure. I I don't know what I think about the connection between the skill and the forged ones. Because we know it's kind of like skill stone that they're, you know, getting their humanity sucked into. Right. But I really, I, I can't even think of anything really. I... So I wonder if, because these people are not willingly putting their emotions into the skill stone, right? This is something that is happening to them against their will. They're being forced. I wonder if something about the skill itself, the usage of skill, calls out to them. And part of them is like, that's where... The part of me that was taken is there's Maybe. a want for that because it wasn't a willingly given situation. Whereas Fitz doesn't necessarily feel that yearning because he gave what he had his memories willingly. And I think that might also be why there's a difference between Verity as we meet him later in the book who has given away a lot of himself and forged ones. Could be, uh, you know, the willingness or un- unwillingness. Right. I don't, I mean, I don't know that that's it at all, but that's something that I kind of think about as maybe a potential reason why that happens. The next part flows right into what we just read and talked about. And it seems like no time has passed at all, which is a more abrupt nod to the previous chapters where Fitz has been going in and out or the dungeons even where we don't know the passage of time mm-hmm. because we find out that he spends the whole day hiding yeah and night eyes is here kind of saying brother it was night eyes muted somehow or at a very great distance i dared open to him a bit i'm all right where are you right here i heard a rustling and suddenly he was there bellying through to me he touched his nose to my cheek are you hurt no I ran away. Wise, he observed, and I could sense that he meant it. But I could sense, too, that he was surprised. He had never seen me flee from forged ones. Always before I had stood and fought. And he had stood and fought beside me. Well, those times I had usually been well-armed and well-fed, and they had been starved and suffering from the cold. Three against one when you've only, only a belt knife as a weapon are bad odds, even if you know a wolf is coming to help you. There was nothing of cowardice in it. Any man would have done so. I repeated the thought several times to myself. It's all right, he soothed me. Then he added, Don't you want to come out? In a while, when they've gone, I hushed him. They've been gone for a long time now, he offered me. They left while the sun was still high. I just want to be sure. I am sure. I watched them go. I followed them. Come out, little brother. I let him coax me out of the brambles. I found when I emerged that the sun was almost setting. How many hours had I spent in there, senses deadened, like a snail pulled into its shell? 
So he sat there the whole day. He was he was terrified. He pulled in on himself. He sheltered himself in and shut out everyone, including Night Eyes. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear this story of, or I guess this perspective of this anxiety-ridden person. It's... He's so scared, he's so frightened of what has happened to him happening again that he's retreating into himself and just not even aware he's doing it. It's just such a defense mechanism at this point. And it's really sad to see because he doesn't he he doesn't really know how to fix it. And I don't really have an answer for it either. I mean, I don't know what he could possibly do to help him through this maybe not head towards danger by killing regal but right you know and his anxiety persists his frightened state persists he he approaches back towards the hut but sits and watches it for a long time even after moonrise and he's staring at the dead body of the forged one that he killed and he can't acknowledge it's dead even yet. Yeah, he has to stare, watch for movement, and Night Eyes is like, he's dead. Use your use your senses, use your nose. But Fitz is just He's so cautious. on edge. Then when he finally gets up the courage to pass the dead body, he still is being cautious. He's looking into the hut. He's making sure nobody's there. Night Eyes is getting impatient and saying, there's no one there. Again, use your nose. And he's panicking. He goes and he checks and mentions that forged ones don't really think for the future. So kind of like how animals are, they live in the now and don't plan ahead. So most of his belongings are okay, but the food is kind of gone through. And even if there is some that's salvageable, Fitz doesn't really want to take any of that with him. If they touched it, he doesn't want it. He's fully trying to get away from anything that is this attack. And he can't calm down. Night Eyes is watching his back he's at the door making sure nobody's going to come in and he still feels like that's not enough that there needs to be something else the door is haunting him he has it open but that makes him feel like somebody's going to come in at any second but it freaks him out more to close the door and then be locked in this cabin so it's just so sad that he's struggling so much he collects his things and sands the food, of course, and gathers them all together, repacks everything, and heads on his way. The only thing he doesn't touch is the shirt that the forged one that he killed is wearing. Right. And we know that his pin for King Shrewd is in that collar. Right. And he does not find that out until later. I also want to mention that Fitz described the person wearing his shirt as not really wearing anything else. So I assume that means nothing on the bottom half. And we know later 
that Burek finds this body and thinks it's Fitz. And I just feel so bad. Like, what kind of situation played out in Burek's mind to see Fitz that way? Like, ones or something. Yeah, it's just so scary that a body treated that way would be found by Burek and he also sad that Fitz is like two days off of meeting Burek probably. Right. It's I don't know. It just makes me so sad for the whole situation. <laughs> Their relationship is heartbreaking so. It truly is. But yeah so it's it's just really sad. And so they're off. They're traveling. And Fitz can't really get away from his nightmares his memories coming back they travel by night because he says he probably couldn't sleep by night anyways and for the first few days he has trouble sleeping during the day even he's startling awake he's thinking if he does fall asleep he thinks that there's somebody something coming for him so he'll have to get up and check even if he hears rustle of movement or, you know, sees something, he has to get up and check. And he's just wearing night eyes down as well as himself right. because of his anxiety. Yeah, it's definitely a really frustrating situation for night eyes because I don't think he fully understands the impractical nature of the anxiety of double checking. When you have your senses, you have two of them there to know that nothing is happening. Um, but it's also interesting to see Fitz pushing away any semblance of manhood that he can, because in traveling by night, he is getting rid of all opportunity to meet someone on the road. So I kind of think this is a little bit of regression in that it's he's excusing it by saying, you know, I can't sleep by night anyway, and... I just don't know if I'm up to dealing with people right now, which is totally fair, but I think it is a coping mechanism to kind of be a little bit more animalistic, even if he's still trying to, you know, yeah, maybe. in his mind, take the step of I'm a man now, not animal. It's just a comfort blanket. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't think it's I, I didn't associate it too much with like being an animal that much, but it does make sense because that's, you know, nighttime yeah. is the wolf's time, but I think you, I, personally in my head, I just rationalized it as him trying to cope with his uh, PTSD, but not in a sense of regression back into wolfness, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. I guess I just think of it as like a subconscious thing. Right. Like it's not a choice he's necessarily making, but one that's kind of being made for him. He says that while he's traveling, that time was not useless during the night. He was honing his hatred for Regal and the Coterie to a fine edge. That that frightened, shaking, shivering rabbit of a man was what Regal had made him. He is blaming everything that he has become on Regal and really sharpening it to drive home his point that he's going to go to Tradeford to kill Regal. Right. That's his whole goal at this point. And he's still recalling all of the memories and, and still being filled with all of that fear, that hatred again, and just directing it all at Regal. Right. Regal had taken everything from him, and now he nurtured a hatred for him. Yeah. 
And I do think it's important to say that Regal definitely is the cause of a lot of the things happening to Fitz, but not necessarily everything that's happening to Fitz. So it's definitely an unhealthy coping coping mechanism that he's latched onto of it feels better to have a big bad to blame everything on. But, you know, it's definitely not all regal. Right. As much as I don't want to give him even that little bit of wiggle room, he does mention that he lost his lover and things like that. And that's not really Regal's fault. That is choices Fitz made on his own. So I don't know. I don't think it's fair that he's doing it, but I understand why. So Fitz plans to head towards Tradeford to kill Regal. They're going to start by going towards the Buck River, which is what the initial blurb at the beginning of the chapter is about. And then he's going to follow that inland and that will lead him to where Regal is. He also talks about how on his travels, he's not super familiar with the inland part of the duchies. He's super familiar with the coasts because all he did the previous summer was man the Rorisk. So he knows a lot about the coast, but the inner workings of the duchies are a little bit more mysterious. The last time he was here, he says it was uh, two years ago, I believe, and it was for the marriage party where they were going to get Ketrickin. So it's been, number one, a long time since he's been inland, and number two, not a place that he really got to be very often. And what he's seeing is the new version of the inland. He talks about the changes that he does notice. Um, Because he has all this time to walk and think, he's not just thinking about Regal. He's also taking stock of what's going on in the duchies. He notices that a lot of the flocks are very small or just non-existent anymore. There are a lot of fields that have been overtaken by wild grasses and the crops that are being grown are in such a small number. And he says that it's kind of surprising because it's what he expects along the coasts where the raiders are. But now that he's in this position where raiders can't easily get to this area, he's confused as to why there isn't more prosperity. He assumed it would be better because they didn't have to worry about the raiders. And that's just not the case. Yeah, and we find out later that's because of the taxation right. that Lord Bright is doing and that the Pharaohmen guards along the roads are also kind of keeping spirits down by declaring things contraband and just random travelers' packs and stealing stuff. And it's it's turning into quite a lawless area, and a lot of the wealth has been stripped from, you know, Buck Duchy and the Outer Duchies to be brought inland. Right. And it's a lot more than just Fitzsaw in Buckkeep. Right. And what's interesting is not only are the crops and the flocks down, the people are completely different than how he remembers them. Those we encountered on the road were brusque and unfriendly, even when Night Eyes was out of sight. I stopped once at a farmstead to ask if I might draw cold water from their well. 
It was a loud me, but no one called off the snarling dogs as I did so, and when my water skin was full, the woman told me I'd best be on my way. Her attitude seemed to be the prevailing one. And then he talks about how the further inland he goes, the worse it's becoming. The people are more and more reluctant to even help people out. Uh, the travelers are not merchants with wagons of goods or farmers. They're ragged families, basically refugees on their way. The, the kids' eyes are shocked and dead. The parents' eyes are hardened. And everyone is guarding like their packs jealously. There's beggar towns being set up around there where mm-hmm. kids are begging during the days and then at night. The parents are, like, guarding the tents that are set up around there. Yeah. It's just not a very friendly place for travelers anymore. So they travel for several nights. He says, ghosting silently through many small hamlets before we came to a town of any size. And so he sets up outside of this town, kind of watching the road a little bit, and he's drawn to the people Right. says, to my surprise, I found myself drawn to my own kind. I left Night Eyes sleeping, but only went as far as the creek at the foot of the hill. I set myself to washing out my shirt and leggings. Because he is occasionally hearing small snippets of shouts from crews of the uh, the boats along the river. Right. And some like passersby that actually seem kind of friendly because this is a large town and can be more easily defended and it's a harder thing for beggars or you know brigands to attack right so there's actually still camaraderie around this area at least within the townspeople who know each other yes and i think it does make him realize that he's not a recluse he is in a lot of ways but i think he also is a pack person he wants a group of people around, and that's what he's known his whole life. So, of course, mm-hmm. he sees a bustling city and is reminded, probably, of his childhood and is like, oh, comfort, that is something that I want. It takes an extremely special and unique person to be completely fine with isolation. Right. Or completely fine with one other person to talk to for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And that would be him and Night Eyes. Almost, I would say, 99.8% of people want more than just one other person. Right. They want to have different interactions, you know. And especially if you were, the one person you were talking to is not a human. Right. (laughs) Like, right. I I don't even think Fitz can deal with just Night Eyes because... He does look forward to Starling's visits and yeah. is excited to see the fool later Definitely. when he's older. That's so, my point. Like, right. he needs other yeah. people. And I mean... He's not one of those people <laughs> that can be alone and isolated. Right, right. And I think even introverts sometimes need a little bit of human interaction, even if it's just one other person. I think just naturally as humans, yeah, we need to know we're not alone in the universe, you know? Night Eyes is, uh, has joined him and says, We should avoid this place. They will try to kill you if you go there. Night Eyes offered helpfully, which I thought was a really funny way of describing that. <laughs> he was sitting on a creek bank beside me, watching me wash myself as evening darkened the sky. My shirt and leggings were almost dry. 
I had been attempting to explain to him why I wished to have him wait for me while I went into the town to the inn there. Why would they want to kill me? We are strangers, coming into their hunting grounds. Why shouldn't they try to kill us? Humans are not like that, I explained patiently. No, you are right. They will probably just put you in a cage and beat you. No, they won't, I insisted firmly to cover my own fears that perhaps someone might recognize me. They did before, he insisted, both of us, and that was your own pack. I could not deny that, so I promised, I will be very, very careful. I shall not be long. I just want to go and listen to them talk for a bit to find out what is happening. And so he decides that he is going to go into town. He is going to go through there, and he and Night Eyes will meet later on the other side of the town. And while he is putting on his clean clothes and taking stock of himself and dressing to once again be known among humans, he is thinking of his appearance. He goes back instinctually to tie his hair back into a warrior's tail, thinks better of it, and just leaves it long to maybe mimic a scribe who has been out of a job for a few years or hasn't had a job in a while. Right. Because Scribe's hair is typically pretty short. They also shave back. We've talked about this last episode, but they shave back their... uh, Yeah, they they say uh, most of them kept their hair short and shaved it back from the brow line to keep it from their eyes when they worked. Which has got to be the ugliest hairstyle (laughs) (laughs) mullet it's it's a mullet pretty much yeah oh no (laughs) scribes are bringing mullets back (laughs) but fitz's hair is a little bit longer it's (laughs) self-described as untrimmed beard and shaggy hair (laughs) perhaps i could be taken for a scribe who had been long without work not a good recommendation for my skills but given the poor supplies i had perhaps that was best right And so we're starting to see that Fitz is kind of unprepared to be a man. (laughs) He's trying, though. He's trying really hard. And he takes stock of what he has. He only has four silver coins from Mm Birik. The flint weight that he has in there weighs more than the coins. Yes. (laughs) And the only other things that he has to be a man is his earring and his pin. And he touches his earring and then tries to touch his pin and finds King Shrewd's pin has been missing. And this sends him into panic. Yep, because it's it's a keystone to his past. And he's trying to convince himself the whole time as he's searching through his pack three or four times, going into his boots multiple times, that it's just a pin, you know? It's, it's fine. It's, he knows in his head, somewhere in the back of his head, that it's still on the shirt of the dead man, of the dead forged one by his hut. But he's going through his pack feverishly and checking everything to find it. And he's just trying to remember the last time he handled it and everything. And he's just, he knows it's gone in his head. And now he's just trying to justify it. It's just a pin. You know, it's fine. It's fine. It's probably better it's gone. That man is dead anyways. You know, just a pin, just a bit of worked metal and a gleaming stone. Just the token King Shrewd had given me when he claimed me when he created the bond between us to replace the blood one that could never be legitimately recognized. Just a pin, and all I had left of my king and my grandfather. Night eyes whined again, and I felt an irrational urge to snarl back at him. He must have known that, but still he came. 
flipping my elbow up with his nose and then burrowing his head under my arm until his great gray head was up against my chest and my arm around his shoulders. I hugged him hard. He turned to rub his throat against my face. After a moment I sighed, and the pain of loss I felt over the thing was less. It was just a thing from a yesterday, Night Eyes wondered hesitantly. A thing no longer here? It is not a thorn in your paw, or a pain in your belly? Just a thing from yesterday, I had to agree. A pin that had been given to a boy who no longer existed by a man who had died. Perhaps it was as well, I thought to myself. One less thing that might connect me to Fitzchivalry the Witted. He's pretty frantic there. It, it yeah. is something that means a lot to him and has been with him since he was eight years old. Right. And I don't think we get a better depiction of this thing actually meaning something to him because he's so flippant whenever he talks about it before this point. He even contemplates giving it up to Burek and Chade and can't, but doesn't quite realize why. I don't think... We, I mean, that's definitely a struggle that we get to see, but I don't think he feels the importance of it. He just feels like it's a heavy weight to bear to give that up. Hmm. And I think... Interesting. So in my reading, I guess I should say, yeah. um, a blanket statement, but I think it's something that before has always been, oh, this is just something I used to get to the king, or this is just something to rub in Regal's face that I can go to shrewd whenever I want. And then it becomes, well, this is weighing me down and I should get rid of it, but I guess for now I'll keep it. And now that it's not there, it's revealed that it's his grant. It's the token that he has from his grandfather. Yeah. It's the legitimacy that he is a farseer that he would never get in a legitimate way. I always had in my mind that, the reader knew and Fitz knew that the pin was important to him, but I felt like this scene vocalized it the best right? and maybe vocalized it the first time to Fitz himself. But I, that could just be my rereader sensibility of like, yes, this pin is important to Fitz and always has been. Mm -hmm. So even reading it in depth as I have, I always felt that Fitz thought it was important to him. It just never had been vocalized as well until now. So a little bit different interpretations of yeah. that. But No, I definitely yeah. read it as something that Fitz tried not to care about. I think as a reader, we know it's important because it gets brought up a lot. Um, that's a pretty clear indicator when something is important. But I think just thinking about the way Fitz talks about it and the way he seems to only think about it in context of the book in the earlier books when it will do something useful for him. I think that makes it more evident that he truly does not realize that this is important to him on a deeper level. And maybe in like some way of like, Oh, this gives me a little bit of importance. Clearly that's why I'm hanging on to it. But I don't think he thinks about it as, yeah. you know, love from his grandfather. <laughs> Night Eyes helps Fitz calm down here, and Fitz decides to go in. Right. He also has a quick contemplation about maybe he should get rid of Burek's earring, too. But he's lost the pin. He should just get rid of the earring. Well, not get rid of it, but, like, 
take it off. Conceal it. Yes. yes. And then knows that he will never do that and that it is there to stay. Yep. Let and it then, be the one link I carried forward from that life to this one. And then he goes down to town. Yep. And their last words to each other are, watch out for dogs, I warned him as he faded into the brush. You watch out for men, he rejoined, and then was lost to my senses, save for our wit bond. Which I think is a very interesting way to depart from each other, because it kind of sets out that they're othered by where they're about to be. I mean, very obviously for Night Eyes, because wolves and dogs are not the same, as Night Eyes so clearly loves to point out. But now Fitz is also kind of not seen by Night Eyes as fully human. I mean, he always has never seen him as fully yeah, human. Yeah, I mean, but... he's always called him little brother or like, well, you're a wolf. Right. Like, we are wolves kind of thing. So I think but, it's kind of the same. Yeah, I don't know. Me. I just was struck by the mirror of yeah. you're not around your your kind here. Night Eyes knows that Fitz is superior to other humans. <laughs> <laughs> he's loyal, you know? Yeah, I suppose. He's hyping his mans up. <laughs> gassing them up you know you got to when you're when your bro is down you gotta gas them up <laughs> so fitz walks into the city the town i guess not a full city and it's pretty late at night now most of the town is in bed and he stops a guard a town watchman before the watchman could stop fitz to ask uh, if he has any recommendations for an inn, he gets an inn name and finds that inn pretty easily, just like the Watchman says. Right. I also want to point out that Fitz has been stumbling all over the place because he keeps mistaking potholes for shadows in the road. Um, so I can only imagine being this guard and having this guy stumbling along the road in this shabby looking outfit, then going, hey, where, where's the nearest inn? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, they're not going to let beggars in. So <laughs> yeah, he warned he warned me sternly that begging was not tolerated there and that cut purses would be lucky if a beating was all they got. I thanked him for his warnings and went on my way. <laughs> Fitz is a. Uh, Tripping over his own feet on his way to this tavern, he finds it, though, and he hears voices singing from inside with laughter, and he walks right in because he... It, it seems just so welcoming. My heart cheered at the friendly sound of it, and I entered without hesitation. Describes a nice little inn on the inside. I always like reading inn descriptions or tavern <laughs> descriptions. Yeah. Because they're all pretty much the same, but they're all like have this give off the same feeling and there's like i don't know yeah. it's a it's a great little like carry along or trope i guess in the fantasy genre of just having <laughs> an inn or taverns kind of spaced throughout your stories right no it's it good. is a very comforting descriptor <laughs> so there are three minstrels two of them are singing and a gray-haired fellow with a harp, evidently part of their group, was sweating at another table as he fastened a new string to his instrument. I judged them a master and two journey singers, possibly a family group. So he stares at them for a while as they're singing, and his mind goes back to Buckkeep and the last time he had heard music and seen folk gathered together, which I'm sure was right before he had Trude murdered in his arms. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
I did not realize I was staring until I saw one of the women surreptitiously elbow the other and make a minute gesture at me. The other woman rolled her eyes, then returned my look. I looked down, reddening. I surmised I had been rude and turned my eyes away. So he had been staring at these two women and uh, they noticed. Right. Well, <laughs> I think you would notice if somebody was yep. intently staring at you for a long period of time. Fitz, of course, was just lost in his mind. <laughs> right. Oh, no, no, no. Fitz wasn't doing anything creepy, but I think from an outsider's perspective, oh, it looks like it. for yeah. sure. <laughs> yes. He also spends one of his coins, not fully because it is a silver coin, on ale. And as he's halfway through it, he realizes he no longer has alcohol tolerance. Yes. And decides to order some food from yep. the little server boy. And then decides to start being a little bit of a Karen. <laughs> Fitz starts grumbling and becoming the worst kind of customer anyone who has ever worked customer service has ever had to deal with about how the prices are a bit higher than they used to be to which the boy replies everything i wish i could have said as a customer service person when i worked there uh well that's harsh that's hardly my fault yeah <laughs> and leaves the table <laughs> basically saying like we have really good prices actually like yeah. don't don't grumble at me sorry that we have good meat good yeah. food good ale sorry like, gas used to be a quarter grandpa yeah. it's not anymore and it's not my fault <laughs> i tried to smooth things over saying well i suppose a silver bit just doesn't buy what it used to perhaps not but it's scarcely my fault he observed cheekily and then went back to his kitchens oh that's great <laughs> it is it's a good encounter he chides himself well there's a silver bit gone faster than i expected and the harper responds now that's a tune we all know. He was sitting with his back to his own table, apparently watching me as his two partners discussed some problem they were having with a pipe. I nodded at him with a smile and then spoke aloud when I noticed that his eyes were hazed over gray. I've been away from the river road for a while, a long while actually, about two years. The last time I was through here, inns and food were less expensive. Well, I'd wager you could say that about anywhere in six duchies, at least the coastal ones. The saying now is that we get new taxes more often than we get a new moon. He glanced about us as, as if he could see, and I guess he had not been blind long. And the other new saying is that half the taxes go to feed the pharaohmen who collect them. Josh, one of his partners rebuked him, and he turned to her with a smile. You can't tell me that there are any about just now, honey. I've a nose that could smell a pharaohman at a hundred paces. And can you smell who you are talking to then? She asked him wryly. Honey was the older of the two women, perhaps my age. A lad bit down on his luck, I'd say, and therefore not some fat pharaohman come to collect taxes. Besides, I knew he couldn't be one of Bride's collectors the moment he started sniveling over the price of dinner. When have you known one of them to pay for anything at an inn or tavern? Fitz is kind of perturbed by that thought because Shrewd was very proud of the infrastructure that he had built in the Six Duchies. Particularly that his tax collectors, you know, paid back what they took as well. They were gracious guests, that sort of thing. Like, they, they didn't come to antagonize, really. And it seems right. like these pharaohmen are quite disliked <laughs> <laughs> right. when they're coming to collect taxes. And not at all how things used to be. Right. And so Fitz asks uh, to refill their mugs. 
He offers them some courtesy and says, May I offer to refill your mug, Harper Josh, and those of your companions as well. What's this? asks the old man between a smile and a raised eyebrow. You growl about spending coin to fill your belly, but you put it down willingly to fill mugs for us? Shame to the lord that takes a minstrel's songs and leaves their throat dry from the singing of it, I replied with a smile. The women exchanged glances behind Josh's back, and Honey asked with gentle mockery, And when were you last a lord, young fellow? Tis but a saying, I said after a moment, awkwardly. But I wouldn't grudge the coin for the songs I've heard, especially if you've a bit of news to go with it. I'm headed up the river road. Have you perchance just come down? And they talk a little bit and introduce themselves. The younger one is Piper. Uh, Josh is the harper. And Honey is the, uh, the older of the two women. Right. And when they ask his name, Fitz hesitates again, second time in a row. For an uncomfortable amount of time. <laughs> yes. And picks the name Cobb. And then can't believe he picked the name of someone he knows he's killed. Yeah, he's known and who's he's killed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but it it's a really good example of how he is very ill-equipped for human interaction again. Yeah, he is out of practice. Very 100%. much so. He has mentioned a couple times, I think lately even, how Chade has equipped him well to lie and has taught him well and everything. Right. And he's just completely out of practice. He doesn't have any answers prepared ahead of time, so whenever they ask really normal questions like, what's where are you from? What's your your name? Where have you been for the last two years? He has no answer. And because he hasn't done any reconnaissance to know what's going on, he can't even sprinkle knowledge about things that are recent. So he can't even pretend like he hasn't been living in the middle of the woods. Yeah. Well, Honey thinks that, well, they all know that Cobb is probably a fake name. Right. Because they pause on that, well, Cobb. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. But uh, Honey thinks that he is a runaway apprentice, a runaway apprentice scribe, because it kind of looks like that. He's young right. enough and everything like that. And they decide, based off of his appearance, that probably he ran away because the scribe he was under was abusive he has scars and a broken nose a clearly healed broken nose well piper observes that at least right josh can't see so right <laughs> good, good clarification yes. josh is blind so he and honey is is not about to offer him any concessions at this point right uh but josh also says that we don't care if you are a runaway apprentice at all These days, most would be happy if their bound lads ran away. One less mouth to feed in hard times. We get these little inklings and and trickles in that life for the commoners is really difficult at the moment. And not just on the coast, but inland. Especially for minstrels, even though, you know, minstrels and bards and everything were well-liked for entertainment in Mm -hmm. times past there's just isn't time for that or money to spare for that entertainment anymore right so they get another round and uh fitz and josh start talking news and honey is chiming in and asking you know where he came from and all that and again like you said he doesn't have answers to it 
And Fitz responds with a my lady back to Honey at one point, so they kind of roll their eyes and laugh at him again. Right. So he's making more blunders. Right, because he is treating himself like he's still, he's talking like he's a lord. Yep. And not mimicking the type of talk he is supposed to be having. Yep. Saying he had come cross-country, visiting some shepherd friends as to why he hasn't come from Buckkeep or from Downriver. And he wants to know about both sides, Buckkeep and Tradeford. And that's why he's asking and why they ask him where he came from then, if he wasn't following the river. Josh is updating him. He's telling him all the news. And being brutally honest. Yeah, I mean, he asked for him, so... (laughs) says, hard times and harder to come for those who farm. The food grain went to pay the taxes, so the seed grain went to feed the children. So only what was left went into the fields, and no man grows more by planting less. Same is true for the flocks and the herds, and no sign that the taxes will be less this harvest. And even a goose girl that can't cipher her own age knows that less take away, more leaves naught but hunger on the table. It's worst along the salt water. If a person goes out fishing, who knows what will happen to home before he returns? And this is what we've been talking about it, uh, talking about from the beginning, at the beginning of this chapter. The last part that Josh says is, There's been a clever song made about a farmer who tells the tax collector that the red ships have already done his job for him. And Honey says that clever minstrels don't sing that song. (laughs) Right. But, But this is what we were referring to at the beginning of this chapter with that blurb about trade both of the main incomes for the coastal duchies including buck duchy are cut out from beneath them they're getting taxed too heavily on the produce and the flocks and the herds so their livestock they they can't grow their herds at all they're just getting culled smaller and smaller because they still have to eat Mm -hmm. and there's no trade coming from upriver inland coming down and the fish are going away because there's less people fishing first of all because of people moving away from the coast because of the raiders there is a worry that the fishermen won't return because of some raiders and there's a worry that if you they do return your city won't be there right it's definitely hard times for the duchies yeah 100 percent. and harder times for those who are the working class yes Always. So Fitz is, uh, asks about the red ships, or at least Claire f- asks a uh, rhetorical question, and Josh chimes in, yeah, they don't care what duchy it is. I doubt they know what the borders are. They're just raiding along the coast wherever the water touches. There, There's, like, nothing that's stopping them. And Fitz asks about the ships, the defense ships, and Josh is like... The ones that have been taken away from us by the raiders are doing very well. Those left defending us? Well, they are as successful as gnats at bothering cattle. Does no one stand firm for Buck these days, I asked, and heard the despair in my own voice. The Lady of Buckkeep does, not only firm, but loud. There's some as say all she does is cry out and scold, but others know that she doesn't call on them to do what she hasn't already done herself. Harper Josh spoke as if he knew this at first hand. I was mystified, but did not wish to appear too ignorant. Such as? Everything she can. She wears no jewelry at all anymore. It's all been sold and put toward paying patrol ships. 
She sold off her own ancestral lands and put the money to paying mercenaries to man the towers. It's said she sold the necklace given to her by Prince Chivalry, his grandmother's rubies, to King Regal himself, to buy grain and timber for buck villages that wanted to rebuild. Patience, I whispered. I had seen those rubies once, long ago, when we had first been getting to know one another. She had deemed them too precious even to wear, but she had shown them to me and told me someday my bride might wear them. Long ago. I turned my head aside and struggled to control my face. Patience is uh, doing her best. Right. And she's really stepping up to the plate. She is taking on everything chivalry was as a leader. She asked no more of her people than she is willing to give herself, which is everything we've heard about chivalry. Right. And she is sacrificing even the things that are precious to her to keep the duchies alive. Yeah, yeah. And this is what we uh, had read, I think I think it was in the front of last chapter, but it could have been two chapters ago, The Lady of Buckkeep. Right. People are actually starting to rally around her. They know her now. Mm-hmm. And she is the one that they look to as a leader. Right. Once again, Honey is demanding sarcastically, where have you been, Cobb? That you know none of this. And Fitz has to quietly just say, I have been away. She cocked her head and smiled at me. Where? She countered brightly. I did not like her much at all. I have been living by myself in the forest, I said at last. Why? She smiled at me as she pressed me. I was certain she knew how uncomfortable she was making me. Obviously, because I wished to, I said. I sounded so much like Beric when I said it, I almost looked over my shoulder for him. She made a small mouth at me, totally unrepent- unrepentant, but Harper Josh set his mug down on the table a bit firmly. He said nothing, but the look he gave her from his blind eyes was no more than a flicker, but she subsided abruptly. Her eyes met mine directly, and the little smile she shot me was defiant. I looked away from her, totally mystified as to why she wished to peck at me like this. I glanced at Piper, only to find her face bright red with suppressed laughter. I looked down at my hands on the table, hating the blush that suddenly flooded my face. She's trying to flirt with him. She is, and Fitz is, of course, oblivious, and is like, oh, she's so mean. (laughs) I mean, from Fitz's perspective as being oblivious, yes, she is kind of mean. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Yeah. If you're not in on it, it seems pretty rude. Right. And definitely that's a a certain type of flirting that does not work with a lot of people. (laughs) Right. But like, even if you kind of knew she was trying to be flirtatious, you could be fine with it. But from Fitz's perspective, where he hasn't have social interaction, (laughs) she is deliberately trying to poke and prod at his story and make him annoyed. (laughs) Right. And also... (laughs) <laughs> he doesn't really have that much experience with girls True. anyway. Yeah. He just, <laughs> that wasn't necessarily part of his intrigue training. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Fitz asks one more time if there's any other news from Buckheap. And Josh has one little other tidbit to tell him, which is very important to Fitz here and to us. Word is now that King Regal will hang the pocked man himself. I had been swallowing a sip of ale. I choked abruptly and demanded, what? 
It's a stupid joke, Honey declared. King Regal has had it cried about that he will give gold coin reward to any who can turn over to him a certain man, much scarred with the pox, or silver coin to any man who can give information as to where he may be found. A pox-scarred man, is that all the description I asked carefully? He is said to be skinny and gray-haired, and to sometimes disguise himself as a woman, Josh chuckled merrily, never guessing how his words turned my bowels to ice. And his crime is high treason. Rumor says the king blames him for the disappearance of queen-in-waiting Ketrikin and her unborn child. Some say he is just a cracked old man who claims to have been an advisor to Shrewd, and as such, he has written to the dukes of the coastal duchies, bidding them to be brave that Verity shall return and his child inherit the Farseer throne. But rumor also says, with as much wit, that King Regal hopes to hang the pocked men and thus end all bad luck in the six duchies. He chuckled again, and I plastered a sick smile on my face and nodded like a simpleton. So Fitz is uh, aware now that Regal has put together Lady Time with Chade, discovered who Chade was and what he did, and now is on the lookout for him. Right. But I think that's a little bit of Chade putting himself out there. Right, yeah. Because I feel like the rumor of him writing to the Coastal Dukes is probably true. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it was leaked by somebody. Yeah. But... Yeah, I don't think Regal, although we have learned that we should not underestimate him, I don't think he would be smart enough to put the pocked man people were seeing uh, near the <laughs> near, near, the, near well. the well as the same person as Lady Time. Right. No. So I think that it's definitely Chade knows that by stepping out, he's giving the missing puzzle piece to Regal. Yeah. And Fitz says, with a sudden sinking of heart, my perception of my actions flopped over. Had I driven Chade away from me to protect him from my plans, or had I abandoned him just when he needed his apprentice? I do wonder if Chade would still be in hiding if Fitz hadn't pushed them away. Possibly. You would have had another actor, even though Fitz couldn't really move about in the open. Right. You would have had another person to help him. Although. That he trusted. Right. I would say he likes being not caged oh, enough true. to get out. But I guess he wouldn't know that he liked it as much if he wasn't forced to step out of the cage. Very interesting things to think on. Yep. Honey makes another little comment, and Fitz finally realizes that, oh, she is trying to flirt with me, I guess. Well, better to move on before there's too much thing, and uh, I hope they just think me rude rather than, you know, make any more inquiries after my past or anything like that. So I'll right. just be on my be on my way. He thanks them and says, like, well, best be on my way. And everyone protests, like, hey, it's, it's full dark. Like, you... You can't leave now. Aren't you afraid of the forged ones? And Fitz, of course, is like, there's forged ones this far inland? <laughs> Which is even more revealing that he is yeah, clearly not who he says he is. But okay, Fitz. And then comes the talk about the patrols. 
because this is another point of pride that King Shrewd had, that, that patrols kept the main roads safe from brigands, from anything, and so Fitz assumed from forged ones. Honey and Josh, Harper Josh say like, yeah, we people are afraid of forged ones. We usually hired like swordsmen or walk with other travelers. Like these roads are not safe anymore. And they're like, the patrols, what patrols? Like, Yeah, I would rather come upon a forged one sooner than a pack of pharaoh men. Yeah. She says, the forged ones do not bother them, and so they do not bother with the forged ones. So, like, they just kind of ignore each other, and the pharaoh men are there, as I mentioned before, to harass travelers, take stuff out of their packs, like, oh yeah, this was stolen from the last town, it was reported and take it for themselves and just bother people and be, you know, brigands themselves. Right. And Josh says he thinks it's because Lord Bright does not pay them enough, or at least not what they think they deserve. Right. So they make up for it by taking whatever it is they do think they deserve. And we have to remember that Lord Bright is a fresh ruler. This is his first time ruling anything, and he was given no money. Right. At least as far as we know. Yep. But clearly that fact no longer matters to anyone who has to live through the realities of well, being should, robbed. It shouldn't matter to anybody anyways. Regal should have put somebody competent in charge. Right. You exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. I just wanted to give perspective on right. why maybe they don't think they're being paid handsomely enough. Because the Inland Duchies are richer and so the pharaoh men are probably used to, you know, better easier, pay. yeah, better pay with easier jobs. <laughs> True. And they're also all bullies in the inland duchies, generalizing. But that's what we've <laughs> learned kind through Fitz's eyes. Yeah, I think they're just bullies too. Out, not out the islanders. Coastals, the coastal. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why I always want to do that. No, I agree. But it's it's the, just a rivalry between we think we're better than you. Going all the way back to that ancient war of the different kings and leaders. Right. So. That's what happens. <laughs> so uh, the patrollers are looking for smugglers mainly. That's what the claim is. And Fitz asks, oh, so King Regal, he does nothing? And Honey sarcastically says, well, perhaps if you go so far as trade for, you might complain to him yourself. I'm sure he would listen to you as he has not the dozens of messengers who have gone before. She paused and looked thoughtful. Though I have heard that if any forged ones do make it far enough inland to be a bother, he has ways of dealing with them. Which is a little pre-mention, a little foreshadowing of the arena that he has set up. Right. And I think it's interesting that Fitz doesn't ask more here. Um, it It's because it reminds him of the things that Regal are is capable of i'm sure but in doing this and being in this character and making the character choice we are also shielded from the horrors that are about to come which i thought was a really cool move yeah yeah and i mean i feel like that that little aside that little comment could be taken pretty much any way and doesn't need to be like oh he like uses them for entertainment it'd be like he has ways of dealing with them Oh, probably because just guards kill him is what Fitz is thinking right. or something, you know? Or but, say, yeah, somebody doing what I did. Right. But also, I don't know. 
I feel like I'd be like, what does he do to them? <laughs> but that's just because I'm a very inquisitive person. <laughs> right. He, he's mainly more focused on what is this whole kingdom coming to? Right. King Shrewd's right. highways are falling apart. Nothing is the same as it was. It's all terrible now. Right. Which he kind of should have expected with <laughs> Regal at the helm, but still. I think Fitz just underestimates all of the things that happen in a kingdom because yeah. he's usually so wrapped up in things that he can see right. that he doesn't think about the little intricacies of like what happens to the crops and the flocks and the farmers and the people and the fishermen. What happens to them when a bad ruler is put in place and he cares and he wants what's best for the people. But I think seeing firsthand how big of a toll poor leadership has yeah. on his people really helps put in perspective all the things that he was not understanding before. Not enough that Regal had claimed the throne for himself and then deserted Buckkeep. He did not even keep keep up the pretense of ruling wisely. I wondered numbly if he was capable of punishing all Buck for the lackluster way he had been welcomed to the throne. Foolish wonder, I knew he was. Well, forged ones or pharaohmen, I still must be on my way, I fear, I told them. Why not wait at least until the morning, lad, and then travel with us? The days are not too hot for walking, and there's always a breeze off the river, and four are safer than three these days. And Josh pushes him here after this. Fitz tries to decline and say, no, I, I'm going to be on my way, like... Thanks for the offer, but I'll go by myself. And Josh keeps pushing, like, please yeah, this is walk a, with us. This, this is for, an offer. Yeah. This is a request. Yeah, please do this for us. I am blind. At least you can see. Even if you say you're not a fighter, you are better in a fight than I am. Right. At least you'll see what you're swinging at. And he has two girls with him. And so he's afraid that he cannot protect them, which... They have decided they will be protecting Josh now. Yeah. Because the last time they were attacked a few days ago. A couple weeks back. Yeah. Yeah. The girls had the sense to run when I shouted them to do so when I could not keep up with them any longer. But we lost our food to them and they damaged my heart harp and and they beat him. Honey said quietly. And so we have vowed Piper and I that the next time we will not run from them no matter how many. Not if it means leaving Papa. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, the father knows they won't run now. So Josh is like, well, I need somebody to help yeah, fight them then if they come. He's like, desperate. And he's yeah. begging Fitz. And Honey says, don't beg. And Josh says, I have to. Yeah, I'd rather beg him to walk with us than beg Forged Ones to let you go unharmed, he said harshly. It, it, it's a desperate situation, and they're asking this stranger who, you know, has been kind to them for maybe an hour, filled up their mugs once. But also has a clearly fake name, obviously is on the run for some reason or the other, is a little scruffy looking. It's a big risk, but he is being kind of kind to them, so yeah, maybe. And Fitz's heartstrings are pulled. He agrees to go with them. At heart, he's still a farseer. He he wants to help the people. Right. And he likes helping people. And he knows he's capable of doing something to help them. Right. At least make them feel safe. 
But he also knows that last time he was up against Forge Ones, yeah. he froze. He he didn't fight, and he's trained to fight, and he didn't do it, and so he does not want to give them a false sense of security that he will be able to fight. So he tells them he's not a fighter, and that he agrees, but yeah, he can't promise to be a good fighter. I cannot say I made the offer willingly, though I am not a man who does well at fighting. As if we couldn't tell that from his face, Honey observed in an aside to Piper. The mockery was back in her voice, but I doubted that she knew how deeply her words cut me. He's still thinking of that moment where he froze. Right. But also the dungeons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His face are clear that he isn't a fighter because he didn't fight in the dungeons. He let them hit him. And he was fighting. Just but in a the different mental way. battle. Yeah. But he still has the physical scars of what they did to him. So it is kind of a low blow without her knowing. Yeah. So he tells Night Eyes that he's not going to be there tonight. Uh, he says, wait for me, watch for me, follow unseen. I will be delayed. And Josh tells them that they're, they have a nice little bed in the barn. So yes. he's going to stay with them in the barn tonight and travel with them in the morning they, Josh also says that Fitz is welcome to a cut of the money that they make on right. the way, yeah. but times aren't as prosperous as they used to be. People don't give a free room and meal mm -hmm. just from a bard asking. Right. And Fitz says, you know, that's that's fine with me. Uh, attempting to be gracious. <laughs> yes. My heart had sunk into a cold place into the pit of my belly. What have you got yourself into now? Night Eyes wondered. As did I. And not even... I don't even think he's worried too much about the prospect of the Forged Ones. He is, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to fight Forged Ones on the way. It's right. more so like he's now attached to some people that he feels responsible for. And also right. he's with people. Right, which is everything that he wanted to avoid. And I just find it a little bit ironic, I guess, that Fitz is like, I don't want responsibility thrust on me. I'm going to make my own choices. And the first thing he does while making his own choices is to become a guard <laughs> to protect others and not really get to make his own choices about where he's going. <laughs> just... Everything that he said he hated, and he's right back in it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Anything else you want to say about this chapter before we wrap up? Um, I would say Fitz is definitely not happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think frightened is more the yeah. correct term here. Very anxious. Frightened, anxious with a... With an edge of anger and hatred, ready to be wielded against Regal. Right. Well, thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments to make about any part of this episode, any suggestions or criticisms for us, please let us know. We're at isfitshappy at gmail.com, or you can comment directly on our episode posts on Instagram at isfitshappy, on Facebook, or on Twitter. We're at Is Fitz Happy on all three of those. So looking forward to hearing from you.
now we get to talk about some of the stuff that was brought to our attention by our listeners this week. And we'll start with Facebook. <laughs> episode two, excuse me, episode 65, chapter two. <laughs> yeah, not quite episode two. Yeah. Going all the way back. <laughs> this is the chapter where he first decides that he's going to be, or the first time that he has like conversations, full conversations, and can hold his own right. as he's... like a man ish thing. He's not better by any shot no (laughs) but uh it's the chapter before he has all the arguments (laughs) and pushes everyone away so we'll start first with some points that ellen brought up the first being that regal probably doesn't care if lord bright has enough funds because it, it he killed his own father so family probably means nothing yeah, which is a, a great point for chapter two, because we were talking about it in there, but uh, also ties in really well with this discussion that we were having this episode, too. Right. So Lord Bright probably didn't get anything from Regal at all. Right. Especially guess... if Regal was willing to hang out his immediate family to dry. <laughs> right. And I guess I just assumed that he would be nicer to his family from the Inland Duchies, because... I felt that he might have more kinship towards inland duchy people than his father, but I think he doesn't feel kinship towards anyone but his mother. Yeah. And his mother is not here anymore, so. (laughs) They also talk about how it's kind of horrible to think about how Burek lets Fitz abandon his own child. And that it's hard to how does Bjork keep that on his conscience? Yeah, and they and they suggest that it's probably because Bjork wants to protect Molly and the kid from who Fitz is at this point. Because if he lets Fitz know that Molly has a child and that it's Fitz's, Fitz mm-hmm. will immediately go to her. Right. Regardless of whether it's a good idea or not. And he is not in the mental state to handle anything surrounding just his relationship with Molly, let alone a new kid. Right. I don't think it'd be a great environment for Fitz to be a parent in. Um, But also, Bjork has seen what not knowing a father has done to Fitz. So it is a little weird that he is okay keeping Fitz from Molly. Although I wonder if he was going to tell Fitz when he finds the dead body later on. Possibly. That he felt, I need to give him a reason to become a man, so I'm going to tell him about the child. And then there is no Fitz to tell about the child. And that's kind of how this keeps going. I can see that. So maybe he's just putting it off. I I don't know for sure, clearly, because I'm not in Bjork's head. But (laughs) it is really weird to think about the fact that Bjork is willing to let Nettle grow up without a father at this point because he doesn't know that he's going to marry Molly later. Right, right. And then lastly, they talk about the blood plague because that pops up again with Bjork's backstory. Right. About how the blood plague killed his grandmother and his mother but how that's 
too early to have been the thing that kills Althea's brother. Yep. And they say that um, they think that the blood plague is just something that happens from time to time. And I agree with that because I feel like we've read a few things that kind of hint towards that. Right. Maybe like one stray phrase of like, oh, the last time this happened, you know, the little kind Mm -hmm. of like it swept through before, but this is the last time the blood plague went through this happened kind of thing. Right. So I, I do agree with the interpretation that the blood plague is something that kind of comes back once in a while and Maybe it's not the same exact disease, you know. Mm-hmm. It hits harder than others sometimes. Yeah, whatever it is, but like it, it does cycle. Right. I, I feel like I understand. I, I can agree with that. Yeah, and it's totally fair that that's just kind of how diseases work. <laughs> sometimes they come back. Then we also, for the same chapter, got a comment from Carrie. And they wanted to let us know that Fitz fits the <laughs> Fitz fits Fitz chivalry fits the description for having RAD, which stands for reactive attachment disorder, mixed with obvious PTSD from other abuses. Um, but just that that makes the way he acts kind of more understandable because of the way he was raised. And reactive attachment disorder is something that happens when an infant does not create a healthy attachment to one of their caregivers. So they become more closed off and um, kind of not as sociable as regular children. And especially with this book, having him and Night Eyes together, he loses a lot of the forethought because of his live in the moment kind of mixing Right. Wolfish thoughts. And yeah, it's so it's interesting. They also commented that the sophistication in Hobbes structure to the, this character is why I love these books. And that they they did clarify that they aren't sure that Hobbes had R.A.D. in mind when creating Fitz, um, but that it does basically fit the symptoms. Yeah. And, and it, I think it follows patterns in real life. Yeah. So I'm uh, so nobody's diagnosing anybody for sure. But it is interesting when there are real life um, things that in real life match up with the characterizations of these characters. Yeah. The parallels are, are quite awesome and, and it makes it more realistic. Right. It gives more character to the characters. Yeah. <laughs> makes them more rounded. Neither Emma nor I can you know, nor I like know those diseases or the symptoms or the disorders or anything like that. Right. But we can look into those characters and see reasons why it would happen. And it it makes total sense when people reach out and say, like, this fits this. And right. it's really cool that Hobb has written in such a realistic way, which I think makes a lot of people connect to these characters. Right. So strongly. It's definitely cool to see the real life applications. And sometimes it just helps me in particular when I'm reading to have a real life name to put to some of the actions that characters make. I know it makes reading more interesting for me. So it's always cool when we get reached out to and somebody tells us a new thing that somebody could potentially be having. Um, But... I don't want anybody to think that we are medical professionals or that this person is claiming to be a medical professional. It's just a really interesting take that um, also could be ascribed to to Fitz. 
yeah, exactly. It just makes everything a little bit more realistic that there could be interesting parallels. We have our next comment from chapter three, moving a little bit forward in the book to last episode. This is episode 66. This is also from Ellen, and we have more talk on fits because the first parts of this book, and honestly all of this series, is all about <laughs> fits. But specifically the first part of Assassin's Quest really dives into Fitz's mental state and his actions and and his past traumas that are, you know, emerging into his character and his actions. So the first part of their comment is about Fitz's recklessness and how we've talked about him throwing himself into danger and how Birik and Chade have noticed that as well. And they just say, like, you know, you throw yourself in harm's way no matter what. And they point out that Fitz says, then it's worth any risk to myself when Verdi says he takes heart when hearing from Fitz. So meaning that it's any it's worth any risk to dive into the skill that you are heartened by hearing me whatsoever right. and that it just the recklessness is back yeah he's never wi- left <laughs> he's willing to risk everything just for a little warmth for someone else which is true he is a selfless character in some regards right uh and that does peek through once in a while and it's to literally any you know friend any risk to himself to right for any family member that he loves dearly enough right it definitely screams for a want of validation and love and that he thinks he has to pay some type of price to earn that and that kind of ties into their second part of the comment that he doesn't care for himself at all like physically or you know emotionally because they bring up his grooming and they mentioned that I said that maybe it's because, you know, Fitz just doesn't like doing it or anything like that. But uh, to Ellen, it reflects that Fitz doesn't care for himself at all. Yeah, he doesn't place value in himself. So it's a really interesting takeaway that um, Fitz truly needs that sense of recklessness to feel worth living in a way and that that's how it feels that he can't just live he has to earn it yeah. which is really sad and it's kind of a result of how he was taught early on i mean that's what he was told all of his life he needed to live up to chivalry standards first of all but then he was told in his assassin's training that you are a tool you do what you're told we are the king's pawns you're here to help and facilitate all of his plans. Right. So he, he grew up thinking that this affection, the only affection he got from, you know, one of his father figures, Chade, was being like, this is how we help. This is how, like, right. You know, this is your we worth. do things. Yeah, this is yeah. your worth. And I think Fitz just kind of took that into himself and applied it to other Aspects. other issues yeah. of his life. And uh, it's part of him now. Which is a beautiful segue from Ellen into an email we got from Irene. Irene wanted to let us know that they disagree a little bit about how harsh we were on uh, Fitz and giving more credit to Burek and Chade for being his father figures than they necessarily deserve, I think. 
which is a very fair thing to think. We were yeah. being pretty kind to Chayden Burek. It is important, I think, for me to note that I do think that they made a lot of mistakes with Fitz. And I think that a lot of their choices in raising Fitz aren't really called for, but they did them. And so, I don't know, I always try to just roll with it and then conceptualize based off of what we know. Yeah, I mean, same for me. I want to chime in here, too, that when I'm usually when I'm disparaging Fitz's actions and his, you know, saying like, oh, he's so stupid, like this is all kind of like stemming from his own insecurities and fears and everything like that. Obviously, through things that have happened, not of his own doing and his traumas that whatever. But I'm thinking of that academically as to reasons why things are happening. But as a personal reader, (laughs) I've mentioned before, Fitz is one of my favorite characters. And I do see and I do sympathize with all of his actions. And I can see, like, he is not to like at fault for the majority of the things that we say he is. Right. But through, I don't know, I don't know really how to explain it, because it's like two parts of me. One is like, yeah, Fitz is, Fitz is a great character, I love him, he is precious, he does stupid things because of past traumas, and, you know, he has emotional reactions to things, obviously. But also, my other part is like, Burek and Chade are awesome, do not say those words to them. <laughs> obviously you're doing this, like, lashing out of your own insecurities and fear and stuff like that. It's just kind of I separate them out a little bit in my head. Right. I think when doing this podcast, um, I try to take away, I don't want to say the emotional side of my readership because clearly I get emotional on this podcast about things. Um, But I kind of take away my knee-jerk emotional response to defend Fitz sometimes, which I still think I baby him in a lot of my interpretations of things happening to him. But I think it's, in order to talk about this series, we can't just fully be like Fitz is in the right all the time and he does nothing wrong, which not that Irene has implied that Fitz has done no, nothing yeah, wrong. No. Um, but we just want to make clear that we, we we're trying to create this balance of mm-hmm. um, making it a little bit more entertaining than just we love Fitz and he does no wrong. Because <laughs> there is um, a give and take and he does make a lot of mistakes. He does make mistakes. And it's hard to talk about those mistakes in a way that that also touches on why he's making the mistake every time and looking all the time at all the horrible things that have happened to him. Yeah. He definitely makes mistakes because of the environment he is raised in and right. has been put through. And that's not necessarily his fault, but he does make decisions that create problems later down the road as well. Yeah. Which is what Irene is talking about in her email here. Speci- specifically, she talks first about how Birk was not a quote-unquote good father at all, really. He put up specific barriers blocking off his and Fitz's relationship, saying, you have to live up to chivalry, your father, and everything. I'm just, like, raising you. So there was never a familial connection between him and Fitz. There was a, you know, smacking him, which, of course, you know, physical abuse is never okay. Right. 
but there was just like like don't do this but never explaining why you don't do anything it was just basically reinforcing behavior to not get caught yeah for fits which is a super good point instead of just like explaining like you don't do this because this will happen like we have to do it the right way it's just like don't do what you're doing yeah there Birk was never a good teacher no for anything except for animals animal work yeah which is very clear because with animals you don't explain to them why what they're doing is wrong you just tell them no so that they stop doing it i meant specifically he's not a good uh teacher for anything except for animal handling like he fits learned a lot right yes (laughs) and he he taught stable boys a lot right but but not becoming a person or raising someone right Burek was not the right person for that job he did as well as he could but he also did not do very well. <laughs> right. Right. He definitely used his tool set and made it work, but not to the standard that could have been achieved. But it is a really good thing to point out that it's kind of Burek and Chade and every family member's fault that Fitz feels that love has to be something that is earned you have to give to receive and that everybody wants something from you burek wanted perfection he wanted obedience and a good example of chivalry's son it was never just for no reason it was to make chivalry proud and chade always expected him to be an assassin and to carry out the king's plans and to not question and carry out his two personalities basically fits as the assassin and fits as the stable boy which further you know exacerbated and frustrated Birik because Birik thought he was doing nothing with half of his time and right a lot it created a lot of issues and emotional turbulence in Fitz's childhood with the relationships he had with his father figures and his parental figures and even his grandfather the very first relationship he makes in coming to buckkeep it's very transactional is yeah i am giving you a roof over your head and training and clothes and a life and you are giving me something in return and as long as you keep up your end of the bargain to follow me always I will keep up my end of the bargain of giving you what a regular grandfather should give their grandson. <laughs> so it is super transactional, which is funny because I never really thought about it in this light. I never thought about any of Fitz's relationships as transactional. I guess not to the extent that it was laid out in Irene's email, um, but it was actually really interesting to think about. Yeah, I guess Fitz doesn't know any better. Right. Molly doesn't necessarily, I think, ask for anything in return except for the truth, which is something Fitz is not willing to give. But he wouldn't know that she doesn't expect something specific from him because every other relationship he has is expecting something from him. He serves Verity as a soldier, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the last thing about Irene's... uh, email here about the relationship specifically is talking about how we said that Birk was showing him unconditional love 
and they don't think that's this that's true necessarily because showing someone unconditional love doesn't mean that you act like he's not your real son you right. don't say this is your you have to live up to chivalry's kind of thing i i agree with that but i think we were talking about specifically i think this was for episode 65 chapter 2 um i think we were specifically saying that birk is showing him unconditional love in this time in Fitz's life. Right. Being raised by Beric, yes, that's not unconditional love. He resented having Fitz for a lot of that time. Felt guilty he couldn't be by Chivalry's side. Felt guilty that Chivalry died when he wasn't there. And probably had some emotions towards Fitz for that. But when he was trying to nurse Fitz back to health after being a wolf, he was showing unconditional love, in my opinion of being as patient as possible as beer can be right. <laughs> trying to get him back. Right. I think there's a difference between a good relationship and a good intention in a relationship. Right. Yes. And I think definitely. Burek has a good intention with his relationship with Fitz. I think that in Burek's mind, it is an unconditional love and he shows that the best of his abilities the best way he knows how but that doesn't mean that he is a perfect father or that he is doing a very good job at showing that unconditional love he was shown he's he's showing fits that way that unconditional love the way that he was shown right with somebody who made him survive taught him how to live right first his first whip partner told him how to thieve Second his grandmother. One, his grandmother, you know, for maybe six years. And then his second wit partner was an angry fighting stallion who also died mm-hmm. by a like a sickness. And then chivalry who literally just kind of taught him manners and how to act proper and have respect and honor and stuff. But he was a young adult by that time, not right. a young boy. Right. So I think... I think that's a good thing that we should clarify is that we don't necessarily find no fault in Burek or Chade's upbringing of Fitz. It's more looking at the underlying intentions of what they were doing, which doesn't necessarily make what they're doing okay. In fact, it mostly doesn't. But it is important to, I I think to me, to acknowledge that I think that still makes them sort of a good father or good father figure, they're trying their best, just like Fitz has reasons why he makes these horrible decisions. So too do Shade and Burek. And every single character, that's what's great about this book, is that every single character has so much color and roundness to them that there's reasons why they all make really crappy decisions, just like we all do in life. Yeah, no, no parent, no adult is perfect and knows how to raise their kid. Right. I'm not speaking from experience. I'm a young kid myself, <laughs> but I know from talking to my parents, from talking to other adults, my family members, no one really knows what you're doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're just kind of going through life and, and doing trying to do better than we were raised ourselves and i think that's what birik was trying to do i think that's what chade was trying to do sometimes when he wasn't trying to teach him his job (laughs) right (laughs) right but it doesn't work out as well as you're expecting probably usually you know like it there's always 
things that you carry on, you perpetuate. And yeah. That's the intention is always there. Yeah. But the actuality is is different. It, the reality is different than the intention often. Right. Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So. Right. The it, last thing that Irene mentions in her email is specifically about how Fitz is reacting in his emotional state. And this is when he is still as um, human wolf, wolf human hybrid thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and how he lashes out with anger at everything and speaks on specifically that anger is a very simple and maybe the easiest emotion to actually emote, to right. actually show and present to the world and the easiest to process because yeah. it it can be quick it can be just like lashing out all the other emotions all the other feelings that you're you're thinking of that are in your head are very complex right. they stem from different reasons there's grief there's sadness there's you know guilt there's a lot of different things that fits himself was trying to forget first of all and not recall so that creates confusion which can you know lead to anger and they like don't make me feel this right and two it's it's way easier instead of talking through your emotions and your feelings to just be angry that they're being brought up in the first place right and so anger is just easy mm -hmm. it's actually a really good point to bring up because in small children that's why when you're little there's so many tantrums because you don't know how to communicate the feelings that are happening because anger is easy. It's studies have been done on this that show that anger is something that is just natural. It just is the easiest form of I'm upset and I don't have the words to explain why. So yeah. you get angry. So it makes sense that in the most vulnerable state that Fitz is in right now and how hard and weird of a an edge he is on becoming man versus not man that he reacts with anger so quickly. Yeah. We we've said it before to each other and we'll, and I'll say it again here. Everyone in this book needs professional therapy. Yes. <laughs> and it would be of a huge help. Fitz would be in a much better mental state if he could learn to process those emotions. Right. A little bit easier. Of course it's, incredibly more difficult now because he's not fully human he's not his body isn't letting him remember right some of his past and things like that but a lot of people need that help to talk through those emotions to become a better person to be able to process those things right. so yeah. in the meantime if you don't have that anger yeah and it's totally fair to like not know how to process complicated emotions it's yeah emotions are hard they're hard they're very hard and i mean since fitz and everyone in this book um are unable to get the professional mental help that they need um, we are just gonna have to stick with the problems that arise from not having great coping skills because you were never taught them Thank you, Irene, so much for that email. Yes, it's always always interesting to hear more perspectives and good to remind us to um, expand a little bit more 
and try not to be as black and white on right. good or bad <laughs> with characters. So thank you all so much for reaching out and we look forward to what we get to talk about next week. 